above any other desire which was to have children. But we read in Genesis 11.30, now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. She was barren. In fact, this is practically the first thing that Scripture tells us about Sarah. Like, if you're starting your own biography, I don't think that you're going to start it off with something as negative as that. I can't imagine that Sarah, if she was thinking about writing her own book, she would have started with, and I couldn't have any kids. You'd be like, whoa, this is kind of dark and weird. Like, I'm not sure that this book would resonate with someone. But I can imagine that her story does resonate with someone here today who maybe can't conceive of a child. And I, I can't imagine what this did to her. as She was called the mother of many nations and yet had no children that she could call her own. We see this throughout Sarah's life. In fact, her infertility led her to sin by not allowing herself to trust God's timing. And I am not in any way an expert in this field, nor do I know the magnitude of grief that you might have experienced. And so I don't want to justify that here this morning. And maybe even including yourself, you've experienced through infertility, through miscarriage. This reality of grief that you didn't know existed a heart for someone that you can't hold in your arms as it was given life, and yet that life was taken from them. And so I can't justify for a moment the feelings of being a mother at all, let alone a mother-to-be who experiences such a whirlwind of trust and fear and uncertainty. You see, in 2 Samuel 12, in fact, David, King David experiences something similar as the father during this situation. David's son was sick, and David is found fasting and weeping on the floor, pleading with God to spare his son's life. But his life was not spared. It wasn't for a lack of God's goodness by any means. Yet David's response to this chaotic and torturous moment after his newborn son had just died is this. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Trials, circumstances, situations, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter what you call it, but whatever it is that leads us down this dark path to depression or anxiety or worry or fear is ultimately found when its answer is in worship to God. I think of when my friend Christopher Laurie, Pastor Greg's son, who passed away tragically in a car accident. I had seen him two days prior to that accident. He's like, hey, dude, well, I'll, see you in, I'll see you in a couple days. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, stoked, you know, we'll hang out, whatever. And he ends up passing away in a car accident. And it was the weirdest thing that ever took place at that moment, someone so close dying like that. And I remember Pastor Greg getting on the platform from that Sunday, and he just quoted the words from Job chapter 1. Naked I came into this world, and naked I'll go out. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's in that we find true, honest love of God in that moment. And so David's response was one of worship in one of his darkest realities. And whatever your dark reality is this morning, whether this is very much reality or it has been before your reality, God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34. He is near those whose spirits are crushed. In a recent book called Walking Through Infertility, there's a story about Jennifer and her husband Patrick who helped the author Matthew Arbo write this book. And she says about Scripture, quote, when it is rightly applied, 
it offers comforts like little else can. Some would approach her with Jeremiah 29, 11. God has plans for your life, not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. Uh, people would use Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in that moment, she's like, okay, Scripture's a great thing, but when applied correctly, it can speak into my life. But in this moment, like, I know that I have a future, and, and it's not that I don't believe that, but in this present reality, that doesn't help. And she even said, oftentimes the most well-meaning words actually hurt the most. Her husband Patrick says of his experiences that he had the hardest time answering his phone. Voicemails piled up on one another, but it was the persistent yet understanding friend that left a voicemail like this one that he tells us about. He says from his friend, hey buddy, you didn't answer. That's okay, really. I'm going to keep calling because I want you to know that I'm here and that I love you. But there's no pressure to answer your phone. When the time is right for you, you can ring me or answer, but not a moment sooner. I'll keep leaving you a message every few days because I just want you to know you're on my heart and in my mind and in my prayers. I love you, pal. And just being able to hear that voicemail from a friend who understood that he may not answer, but he was going to leave that voicemail anyway, it's okay to know that you can let someone know that you're praying for them. In fact, the Bible even says that a friend might even stick closer than a brother. And that's what Patrick experienced from the fatherly side of infertility and not being able to conceive. Listen, please, whatever I say has no merit to it unless Christ can first, of course, validate it. I tread lightly around this topic because I literally have no idea how to walk through something like this. But I do know what the Bible says about our experiences, and how we can help carry the burden with others so that we might truly live out the love of Christ to live out our love for others. But even greater than someone else bearing your burdens with you, Jesus offers to bear your burden for you. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In fact, that very yoke that Jesus was talking about was a mechanism used in agriculture to keep two oxen together to plow a field. They were creating something that was not there originally. And so Jesus is saying to you this morning that he wants you to take his yoke upon you because he, as the older, more mature ox who has plowed multiple fields before for a harvest that is ripe in its season, is saying, come join me and I will walk with you and I will show you how to produce fruit in your life even when it seems like it's impossible. Jennifer continues and says, there were seasons in which we were probably calloused and our hearts were chapped with grief from one miscarriage after another, from failed attempt to identify the exact cause of our reproductive issues. There were, however, very sweet seasons in which the soil of our spiritual lives was all the richer for the tilling. Ultimately, we grew closer to God and in intimacy with Jesus. Our spirits were deepened as we came to know Christ in His sufferings and treasure His Word all the more fully and she says, Scripture became for us a fixed point of stability when all else was shifting chaos. 
even aside from those who have experienced something like this, God meets all of us in our darkest depths of our grief and our depression and offers himself to us to stabilize the instability we face daily. David cried out, when I am in the depths of Sheol, you are there. Sheol was another term for hell. We have all experienced a sort of hell on earth that we do not wish upon any person, but it is through the fire that we see the refinement process prepare us for future problems. Even as a church, when we've, when we've been walking through the book of James together, which we'll pick up again next week, but in that we've seen that through that refinement process, it's not necessarily for that moment, but that over a long period of time we would experience the goodness of God. As much as Sarah was known for her shrewdness and her lack of trust in God at times, she's recorded in Hebrews 11, 11 by saying, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since, since she considered him faithful who had promised. What makes her story so profound is that through her, God did what seemed impossible and made it possible. Moms, can we pray a blessing on you right now? We want to pray that the desires of your hearts as a mom or as a mom-to-be, if that's your desire, that you would see that fulfilled in the promises of God. As a grandmother, that you would see that for your own children, to experience that this morning. And I know that we have some expectant moms in the room. We want to pray for your kids and for you during that healthy labor and delivery. Would you pray with me right now? God, in this moment, we saw this character highlight of Sarah, and we see that through her infertility and through being unable to conceive of children, that she had to find her trust and her faith and her hope in you. And Lord, that's our desire for anyone in this room right now who might be experiencing infertility, who might be experiencing situations where they cannot conceive of children and there are issues, Lord, whatever that might be, whatever that might look like for someone, would you speak into their life right now? Would you minister your spirit in a way they've never experienced that before? Like a mighty rushing wind that came upon the early church, would you, spirit, as a mighty rushing wind, come upon the people in this place with your presence and with your love, with your comfort, with your hope, with your security, with your compassion today? God, we pray the blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, wherever you are at in your motherhood, God is ready to reveal the breakthrough that no one else saw other than God. We now see this other character, Hannah. Her, me her name means grace. She is known as the grace of motherhood in Scripture. And yet her journey to motherhood was not one of convenience or even satisfaction as well. She was found to be distraught and depressed. Like Sarah, she was childless, and like Sarah, she received the blessing she saw from God. It was Hannah's son Samuel who was the last of the judges. He was also a priest, the one who formally inaugurated the true royal line of Israel, leading to Jesus, by anointing King David. Samuel became a towering figure in Israel's history. And because of Hannah keeping her promise to the Lord, she would dedicate her son Samuel to serve in the temple. And we may not have had the amazing outcome of God's work done through Samuel's life if it weren't for a prayer that she prayed in 1 Samuel 2. She says, My heart exults in the Lord. 
My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This is a great response to what Hannah was dealing with just a chapter before this prayer. In fact, in Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel 1, verses 6 through 7, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. She was provoking her because this other woman kept having children. And she kept throwing it in the face of Hannah, like, where is your God? How, don't, how come you don't have kids? This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And yet what better a response to bitterness and ridicule than to take it to God? As St. Augustine says, trust the past to God's mercy. Trust the present to God's love. And trust the future to God's provision. Her prayer is interesting because this one thing she asks of God, she says that she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She was in that moment making what's called a Nazarite vow, which comes from the Hebrew word Nazar, which means to abstain from, to keep away from, to consecrate oneself to something specific. And so for her son, who had not been born yet, she gave this idea of a vow that this entire thing that she was desiring in her life, this very thing that she could not grasp and yet wanted to hold on to, she would be holy and solely dedicated to giving him back to God. She was asking to receive a son, yet was willing to give him back to God, which begs us to ask this question this morning. When we pray for something, do our intentions lead to us giving that answered prayer back to God? If there's something that's on your heart and you're praying and you're persistent about that thing and you're wondering, God, would you meet me where I'm at? Would you provide that need? Would you see where my heart is? In fact, the psalmist says that if we delight in God, he will give us the desires of our heart. So in that prayer, do we then turn back to God and intentionally give that answered prayer back to him? Hannah's example of prayer for her son, in fact, is why some churches dedicate children to the Lord in a way where we are saying, Lord, thank you for this blessing. Thank you for the opportunity to steward this child or these children that we might raise them in the ways of God, that they would willingly find you and serve you with your life. And in fact, we do that here at Garden City. If your child has not been dedicated before the church, we would love to do that for you, and we can do that for you at one of our future services. What, I, what I've come to notice in the last few years is there seems to be this like competitive motherly realm that exists like on, on social media, within the, the, the baby industry itself. Did you know that the baby industry itself, I just say the baby industry, like, I know that sounds weird, but like the products and things that they make and create and all that is a $69 billion a year organization, company. $69 billion a year by different products and strollers. Why are strollers $700? I'm just trying to figure, like, I don't get it. $700 for a stroller, like, let me just build one for 100 bucks. Like, maybe for my Kia, maybe that's the one I should get. 
And for $69 billion a year, it's this competitive thing that, like, I, I don't believe it all comes from a place of deceit and pride, although it can lead to that. But it's almost like, how organic can I create my environment for my child, right? Like, they wear the organic shoes, they eat the organic food, they use the organic hair product, we drive the organic car, like, I don't, like, whatever it is, it's all these things. It's like the high-tech stroller, you push a button and it, like, and it, like, transforms itself, and then you push a button and it, like, collapses on itself. That's actually a real one, by the way, and I didn't know that until I was already done with strollers, and so I couldn't have one, and it would have made being a father a lot cooler. Wearing the latest diaper bag fashion, that's another thing. Hitting milestones for kids, right? He or she, they're just so advanced for their age. Oh, well, my kid was walking at nine months old. How old was your kid when they were walking? And so the mom wants to blog her journey of motherhood in the trenches, but the reality of the actual motherhood in the trenches keeps us from seeing that happen sometimes. You don't have to have everything right, everything polished, and everything in order. In fact, don't let someone's spotlight dictate your backstage. And what I mean by that is when you go on Instagram and you're scrolling through and you see this mom, she's got all her makeup on, she's got her hair done, her house is clean, her kids are all beautiful with these perfect haircuts, they're all perfect skin tones, they've got the perfect little minivan sponsored by Honda, it's like this really cool lifestyle and it's like, why isn't my motherhood like that? And that could be somewhat of a provoking thing for other moms that maybe you're not in consideration of. And it's just a, an odd thing and you see these, I mean that's why you have like the Instagram versus reality posts and those memes that are out there because that is the truth. Like Instagram's like, look at me, we're so perfect. Look at my, my jawbone, so like structured perfectly. Like God has blessed us with a beautiful family. And then the reality is like, are you, have you seen my house seven days a week? Like it, it's a nightmare, it's a wreck. And it's this thing where we try to compare someone's spotlight where they're trying to highlight their life and we're trying to let that dictate what's happening in our backstage because we're trying to get the kids ready for school, we're making lunches, we're giving them baths and showers, we're taking them to the park to try to tire them out so they'll actually fall asleep on time. Like those are the things that are actually the reality. By the way, that's a great thing by the way, like your kids playing outside all day, like they'll knock out as soon as you want them to. We can all learn from Sarah and Hannah and maybe some of the ladies in here don't ever think of motherhood as something you desire and there's nothing wrong with that either. God may have placed you in a unique, significant way, whether it's you working in a field or you being a teacher or whatever the case may be. Don't think that motherhood ultimately has to be the thing that God would bless the most in your life because that's not always the case. So right now, can I pray for the moms that are in the trenches right now? Can we pray for the moms who are experiencing the trenches and it just feels like a battlefield with one or two or 12 or 13 kids or whatever, however many kids you have, like, you're in the trenches. I get it because I see it, and I'm not always in the trenches. I'm, like, walking past the trenches, like, how's it going? Like, you guys doing all right down there? And there are times when I get in the trenches, and I'm, like, tap out, like, I'm done. Like, someone, someone come get me. I'm exhausted after two seconds. When my wife goes out with, like, her girlfriends and stuff, I'm, like, oh, shoot, what are we going to do? Like, I just have to try to keep them alive. I don't care what happens. Just as long as they're still living when she comes home, I'm cool with it. It's great. But seriously, can we pray for the, the moms in the trenches right now? Because I know you're in the trenches. You will be in the trenches soon. It will happen. It's going to exist in your life. The moms who have been in the trenches, maybe you can write a book for some of the other moms in here. We'll get to that in a few moments. But let's pray. Lord, would you be with the moms that are in the trenches right now? 
Would you help them to truly experience, even though this life is a battlefield, that it is something that can also be enjoyed in knowing that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against the principalities and the the powers of the air, but we're also reminded that the victory is already ours in that battle because you have given it to us through Jesus. And so I pray that the moms that are in the trenches right now would truly experience a grace covering over them, a mercy like like anything else, a love and a compassion and understanding from us as husbands and as fathers, that in the trenches they would truly experience a peace beyond understanding as your word reminds us to not be worried or anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known to you. And when we do that, you will give us the peace of yourself that surpasses all understanding as you guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus. Bless the moms in the trenches. Bless them when they get out of the trenches as well. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. Talk about motherhood in the trenches. Like, Talk about having to live up to a standard of a mom like Mary. But something interesting that's not always highlighted about Mary, and Scripture doesn't give us a complete record of this, but throughout history we learn that Joseph, Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father, had died when he was around a teenage year. And so this would have made Mary a single mom, raising the Son of God, like put that on a resume and smoke it. Like, that's pretty much what Mary was able to do. Like, she was able to tell, like, I'm Mary, mother of God. They're like, oh, you, you know, like, that's, that's amazing. But he, here's the thing about Mary is that she never sought the attention for herself. Her entire ministry was so that it would be pointed back to Jesus. It was even at the wedding at Cana when she goes to Jesus and she says, um, hey, can you turn this water into wine? He's like, my time's not come yet, woman. Like, what are you doing? She's like slapping him across the face. I'm your mother. You will turn the water into wine. I don't know what translation that is, but she didn't actually say that. But you can imagine like being the mom of Jesus, and he's like, this is not my time. She's like, make the wine right now. You know, like, this is a wedding, and we need it. Make it happen. And so I I can't imagine for herself this experience of having to raise the Son of God and having the ridicule from what she experienced early on because of the fact that her and Joseph had not been together to conceive of Jesus. And yet here it is that we see Mary working through the life of Christ and seeing her son born and seeing her son die. She was one of only few at the cross as she saw Jesus take his first breath in the inn, and as she saw him take his last breath on that cross. Single moms, you are loved, you are noticed, you are precious in the sight of God. You've taken the role of two parents and condensed it into one, and you are fighting and you are killing it. It's been said before, your journey requires the strength of two, but is carried on the shoulders of one. As we think of the moms in the room, we also look to all the ladies in the room. This is not just for the moms today, but for all the ladies in the room. It's this call to spiritual motherhood. There are different ways in which we can be, or for you ladies, a mother to those that aren't even your own kids. Whether it is to your own kids, you have a motherly instinct for them. You have a spiritually motherly instinct for those younger women as well. Because Christian women need spiritual mothers too. 
in our text today in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Don't get caught up on that whole phrase, working at home, about the moms as a way to justify that the mom should always be at home and not work. I know a lot of great moms at work. My, my wife works, and she's doing a great job at this long-term subbing job that she's doing. So don't look at that and say, like, well, this is the justification of why the women should stay at home. Ha, like, quit your job, you know? You belong at home, woman. Like, that's not what this is getting at. This was a cultural experience that Paul was getting at in this city of, Cre- uh, of Cretan. And so it was there where, where Paul was trying to remind them through Titus because this cultural expectation for them was house and work were not divided. They were together. There was this uniqueness where working in the home was a way of work. You think of the farming and you think of the ranch and everything else, that there was this family unit that took place. And so don't get caught up on that because spiritual motherhood, according to Titus 2, is in a sense a type of discipleship. God's provision in an ungodly culture was the ministry of the elders in the church and the intentional ministry of the older women, which actually brings up a point about the elders in the church, that with our church, we seek to be governed by an elder board at some point in the future. Right now, our church is governed by a board of directors. I actually have never shared this before, and so we're going to share it now because I think it's essential for you to understand the structure of our church and of this being a nonprofit organization, in that there's a board of directors that helps us make decisions on things so that I am not able to go and do whatever I want. Like, we want to buy that? Let's buy it. We want to do this? Let's do it. There's accountability within our church structure. And then even further than that, our desire as our church grows is to see men and women in our church become a part of our leadership team. That we would have men and women who are deacons in our church, which is just a great way of saying you serve the church, the local body of Christ. And that's what Paul was getting at in seeing this through Titus, that we see the elders of the church and the entire ministry of women to make an impact in their local community. Paul called for the older women to model godly character and to teach what is good to the younger women in the context of their homes. He wanted the older women to show and to tell what godly womanhood looked like in everyday life. In fact, this is a sort of great commission for us to recognize that women are to teach one another to observe all that God has commanded us, including evangelism, discipleship, and baptism. In any sense of life you find yourself in, or in any season of life you find yourself in, Look to be taught by women older than you and to teach women younger than you. But that's not in, that's not in reference to age. That's actually in reference to spiritual uh, formation. A way in which maybe you have been in the faith longer, but you're younger than someone else. There might be an opportunity for you to learn and to see how that life is live, lived in Christ. And so you do not want to have to run to the women, which you don't have to run to the women with the most charisma or influence, but those of character. As it's been said before, the quiet saints make the loudest noise. 
And in the realm of discipleship, that is the case. That it's not always about, look at what we're doing. Look at this amazing thing we've done. It's not necessarily about that because it's the quiet saint who is making the loudest noise. Because they recognize that their identity is not discovered in what people think of their discipleship or their womanhood or motherhood or whatever, but that it's found in Jesus. And so Paul doesn't let us get away with comparison or rule-based teaching. Even when he addresses the specifics of godly living, he makes it clear that our behavior flows from the gospel. It's the gospel and sound doctrine that gives godliness its shape. In verse 1, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness in verses 11 and 12. It's the woman who knows the gospel will live her life in the liberty that comes from grace rather than attempting to meet her vision of perfect womanhood. I do not try to project, hopefully, this masculine approach upon this as I've discovered the truths for women to live in certain ways. Like, I I don't understand that and what you experience and what you go through. I will teach it from the pulpit because that's what I've been instructed to do as the leader of this church, but I only see you once a week. Maybe, Maybe sometimes two or three times a week. Or we talk on the phone or we text or whatever. It is on you, each person in this room, to further one another's deepening of their faith and of relationships into the community of God. And so can I pray for the single moms? Can I pray for those to desire biblical womanhood that you might find that community and that relationship that maybe you've been looking for this whole time? You can find it here at Garden City. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that you can find community and discipleship, but also know that it takes an effort on your part as well. Know that it is on you to go and ask someone if you could disciple them just as much as someone is, is, is hoping that someone would come and ask them to be discipled by you. It's from that place where we think of Jesus and how he called his disciples. The tax collectors weren't waiting on Jesus, like, I hope Jesus comes and asks me to follow him today. Like, that would be so cool. Jesus identified the people in his community, and he recognized that he wanted to do life with those people. And he did, and he found himself in that model of discipleship. And that's what we desire as a model of discipleship here at Garden City as well, that you would find someone next to you, and you would say, follow me. I want to disciple you. I want to teach you. And, it, and, and even from that point, it's not necessarily that you're doing all the teaching, but that you're wanting to do it together, and that you're finding community in that way. So it's from that place where we also come to the communion table, where we recognize as we remember the Lord in this moment that the only way we could ever reach that level of grace is by only recognizing who Jesus is. That the only attempt to receive grace is to know that it was first freely offered to you. That was Paul's whole point. Like the grace you have in your life is not because you did anything, because if you did it, you'd boast about what you did. But Paul says it was given to you as a gift so that no one can boast. You can't boast to someone like, look at this gift I got, because what it ends up doing is makes you wanting to share that gift with someone else. Would you receive that grace this morning as we look to pray for the single moms, for those that desire biblical womanhood, and even for us as fathers, for us as husbands, for those of us, whether you're in a dating relationship or you're single, whatever it might be, 
The reality of today is that you have an opportunity to experience, even in your darkest depression, the presence of God. That even when you feel like it's all adding up to me having to compare myself to someone else's story or post or whatever, that your identity is found in Christ and that you're not alone in what you're doing and that through community you can find true identity in Christ. Let's pray together.